Father, we ask for illumination right now. Would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word? Uh, Would you open our ears to hear the voice of Christ in your word? Would you soften our hearts to receive the truth of your word? Would you ready our hands to apply the truth of your word to our lives, to obey it for the sake and glory of Christ? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Is social justice a distraction for Christians? Is social justice a distraction from the gospel? Are various efforts in, in social engagement, in poverty relief, in uh, social reform, are these distractions for us as Christians? Are they a distraction from the call of God upon us as Christians and, and as a church? You may or may not know this, but this is actually a very controversial topic in our particular corner of Christendom right now. Uh, it's, it's a controversy, but it's actually a relatively recent controversy. Uh, it's, it's, it's controversy is a relatively recent development. Um, historically, the church is actually, has tended to see uh, caring for the disenfranchised and under-resourced, for the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed people of the world, as an essential part of our calling as God's people. In fact, the, any sort of uh, conviction or belief that churches should not be involved in such efforts uh, in an area of social justice and social engagement is pretty well confined to our particular soil and our particular century, really. And even then, only amongst a very small group of Christians. Christians, not perfectly, not with absolute consistency, but, but characteristically, have been, always been a people of social justice and social engagement. Now, one of these uh, examples, one example of this, uh, can be found in, in William Carey. Uh, would you put William Carey up there? There he is. I love this guy. William Carey. Uh, y- you may know him as the uh, British shoe cobbler turned pastor turned missionary. Um, he was a, a missionary to India, sent there to evangelize uh, in India. He baptized several converts there. Uh, he made a Bengali translation of the New Testament there. Uh, he was a zealous evangelist. He actually authored a book uh, about missions and evangelism entitled An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. He was very interested in evangelizing and seeing people converted to Christ and having their uh, eternal destiny changed. He's very interested in this. These are the kind of things that we might know him for. But if you were to go to India and you were to ask several people on the street in Calcutta, what they might know William Carey for, their answers might be a little bit different. They might know him as the man who successfully campaigned for women's rights in India. Or perhaps as the man who spoke out against uh, the common practice at that time of burning widows along with their recently deceased husbands' bodies. Uh, They might know him as the man who campaigned for the humane treatment of lepers, or as the man who started dozens of schools for, for children uh, to provide education for children of all different castes in India. 
Another might point out that he started another, uh, a number of lending libraries to help with education and literacy amongst the poor. And we could go on and on, actually. He was, he was a great social reformer in India. And if we were to put the question to William Carey regarding whether or not social justice was a distraction from his work as a missionary, I think he would tell us no. And I think the widows during his time in India would probably agree with us. And then he would probably tell us to read our Bibles. And one of the texts that he might point us to is Amos 5, chapters 18 through 27. Here we find that justice is an essential part of our calling as Christians and as a church. It's a matter of obedience to God's commands. It's not optional. True religion includes living lives of justice and righteousness toward our neighbors. And that's the sort of big idea of our text. True religion includes living lives of justice and righteousness toward our neighbors. And so let's read here from Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 27. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen to the word of our God as if Jesus Christ was was himself here saying these words to us, that these words come to us right now with the very same authority, because this is the word of our God. And this is what God says to us, church. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Cayune, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Now, uh, many of you who were here two Sundays ago, you might notice that our text this morning, again, is in a, in a chiastic structure. Uh, if you'll recall, a chiastic structure is uh, when there's a, a sort of list of ideas or themes um, laid out and then repeated in reverse order. And that's what uh, we saw in Amos 5, 1 through 17, uh, was this sort of structure, and so it is with our text this morning. In verses 18 to 20 and then verse 27, We see the Lord exposing a presumptuous hope. And then in uh, verses 21 to 23 and 24 to 25, we see the Lord expelling a perverse worship. And then in verse 24, the very center of our text, and therefore that which the, the Lord is emphasizing, we see him exhorting a pursuit of justice. This text is exposing a presumptuous hope expelling a perverse worship, and exhorting a pursuit of justice. Well, first we see here, God through Amos, 
exposing a presumptuous hope. In verse 18, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. And right away, we see this, this phrase, the day of the Lord. That might have caught your eye. And this would have been a phrase commonly known amongst Israel in Amos' day. God's people would have put their hope in this, this coming day wherein God would come and deliver them from their enemies, judge Israel's enemies, the surrounding nations, and save them, ushering them into this new and glorious age. However, their hope in the day of the Lord presumes that they are, Israel is, in fact, God's friend and not his enemy. And because of the the sort of various social injustices that they were committing, this is quite presumptuous indeed. And so Amos says, you don't know what you're hoping in. You don't know what you're saying when you say we hope in the day of the Lord. You don't know what you're saying. The day of the Lord is going to be a dark day for you, Israel. He says that it's going to be like someone who meets a lion in the street, and then they run away from the lion only to meet a bear. And then finally, they run into their house, and, and then they finally breathe a sigh of relief in the safety of their own home, and they, they lean their hand against the wall to catch their breath, and a serpent bites them. It is inescapable. This judgment is inescapable. God's judgment will not be escaped. And then in verse 27, he, he no longer speaks in metaphor. He blatantly tells them that it's going to be a day wherein they are brought into exile north of Damascus, which of course would have been the nation of Assyria, which is fairly weak in Amos' day, so it's quite the prediction on Amos' part, if that's all it is, that uh, Assyria would come and bring them into exile. And as we know, God's word always proves to be true, and Amos' prophecies were true. About two to three decades later, after Amos preached, Assyria invaded Israel, decimated the nation, and carried many into exile. And now one of the things you notice when you're reading the prophets is uh, that they often speak about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. You see this often, uh, especially in Joel and, and then in Amos here and in several others. And it's, you know, like in Amos here, it's a day of the Lord's judgment upon the nations and uh, a day of deliverance for God's people. But if God's people are continually living in, in a state of unrepentance and sin, then it's judgment for them as well. That's what the day means for them. But on this side of the new covenant, we know that these, these days of the Lord mentioned in the prophets are actually precursors and pointers to the ultimate day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, as we say in the Apostles' Creed. The prophets in the Old Testament, they spoke of these, these uh, lowercase d days of the Lord in Israel and in Judah, but they're ultimately pointing an uppercase D, day of the Lord, when God's judgments will be eternal and global and final, and he will judge all nations and all peoples and all individuals, and everyone will have to stand before him and give an account. As Paul says in Acts 17, 31, in his sermon there, he says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This day is coming when you will have to give an account to the living God. And so now, part of what we're called to in Amos 5 here is to take care to ensure that we are not presumptuous in our hopes 
concerning that day, like Israel was presumptuous, presumptuous in theirs. We, of course, we, we look forward to the capital D, day of the Lord. As God's people, for God's elect, it's a day of joy and salvation. It's a day wherein the Lord will give us resurrected bodies and a glorified earth when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and all sad things will become untrue for God's people. It's going to be a wonderful day. But then, if you're living in sin and unrepentance, you're in danger. Do not presume that that day will be light and not darkness. In fact, the the Lord actually tells us that many will be surprised and shocked on that day to find out that it's a day of darkness and not light for them. If you want to look in your Bibles in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, the Lord Jesus says that, that on that day, He's going to return in glory, and He's going to be seated on His glorious throne. And all the nations of the earth are going to be gathered before Him there, and he's going, He says He's going to separate the peoples as He says, a a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And on his right, there are going to be the sheep. And they'll be welcomed into the bliss of his eternal kingdom. And and on the left, there are going to be goats. The sheep, he's going to say to them on his right, he's going to say to them, you're welcomed into the eternal bliss of my kingdom for, because, literally because, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, as you did to, the, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. But then to those on his left, he's going to say, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And Why? He says, for, because I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison. You did not come visit me. Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now this is significant. Because notice that Jesus doesn't say anything about the theological knowledge of sheep or goats. He doesn't say anything about how faithful they were in their quiet times. And don't get me wrong, I I think that knowing theology and having biblical knowledge is so incredibly important. That's my Systematic theology is my love language. But but don't, don't misunderstand... The quiet times, I, I, I think quiet times are so incredibly important. I start every day with the Bible and prayer, and I think you should too. I think it's a must for you. But, but understand, starting your day with a quiet time and reading Herman Bavink before bed, he's a systematic theologian, is not all that you're called to in the Christian life. If you think that about sums up the Christian life, you are sorely mistaken. God will not be placed in a box of religious knowledge and ritual. He wants the entirety of our lives. 
And one of the demands that he places on our lives is to love our neighbors, and particularly our neighbors who are poor and marginalized and oppressed, our neighbors who are disenfranchised and under-resourced and pushed to the margins of our society. And in fact, according to Jesus, if we show a lack of care for such peoples, we actually have no reason to be confident when the day of the Lord comes. It's presumptuous to hope in that day if we carry on our lives without care or concern for our fellow image bearers who suffer from injustice. Now moving along, we also see that unless we're people of justice and righteousness, we actually have no reason to be confident that the Lord receives our worship either me next at expelling a perverse worship in verses 21 to 23 and 25 to 26. Apparently there was false worship taking place in, in various forms in Israel. And many thought that, that as long as they carried on attending worship services and continued making the necessary sacrifices, that, that God would be pleased with them, no matter what they did. But some of them, as we see in verse 26, even seem to be worshiping false gods, Sikkoth and Cayun, images they created for themselves. And so the Lord asks them in verse 25, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? And now, many, as I was reading a lot this last week on this text, commentators and scholars are not at all clear as to what's going on here in verses 25 to 26. Some of them think, most of them think that in Amos's question, he's implying that the answer is no. He's implying that Israel didn't really bring sacrifices in their 40 years in the wilderness or that they, they did so in a kind of minimal way. I don't think that's exactly right because we actually know that they did adhere to the sacrificial system in some ways as they were wandering through the wilderness in 40 years. They kept up with the tabernacle in the wilderness. And yet, all the while, even though they sacrificed and even though they kept up with the tabernacle while in the wilderness, they still displeased God with their idolatry of the golden calf and various injustices that they had committed. That's why they were in the wilderness in the first place, not because they failed to offer sacrifices, but because they had worshipped the, the golden calf and committed injustices. And, and so they were not, because of this, permitted to, answer, to enter into the promised land for 40 years. In other words, he's saying, don't think that keeping up with sacrifices and offerings is all it takes to please God. In fact, that's not even the primary thing God desires from you, Israel. As Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23, there are actually weightier matters of the law. Being a people of justice and mercy and righteousness, obeying God's social commands. The importance of these outweighs the importance of sacrifices and offerings, according to Jesus. In all actuality, if, if you neglect these weightier matters of the law, then God begins to hate and abhor your worship. And we see him saying this in verses 21 to 23, don't we? He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. It's literally, I take no delight, means I, I don't even, I don't take pleasure in smelling your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Notice that these, these worship events, even in looking good and orthodox, are actually just as contemptible to 
Lord as the worship of Sikuth and Cayune. The Lord utterly rejects their worship. He says, I hate it. I won't listen to it. I won't look at it. I won't even smell it, he says. Notice how he speaks in terms of the senses. In verses 23, he says, I won't even listen. I'll just close my ears to that nonsense. In verse 22, he says, I won't even look upon your peace offerings. I'm going to close my eyes to those. In verse 21, he literally says, I won't smell your solemn assemblies because they stink, they're putrid, they're rotten. And why? Verse 24 gives us the hint. Understand, the Lord is displeased with the worship of his people when it's not accompanied by lives of obedience to his social commands. And now, we in some ways belong to a a Christian subculture wherein we place a heavy emphasis on on worship style and, and all that. Sometimes we, we place a heavy emphasis on what kind of music is played in the worship service. Or even beyond that, the, the entire feel of the worship service, the decor, the aesthetics of the building, and, and uh, what people wear and what they dress like during the service, and all that and more. And, and we often pick churches and, and choose churches that meet our preferences in one way or another, whether we like the worship or not. Far less often, do we ask the question of whether or not God likes the worship? What kind of worship does God like? Does he like really, you know, kind of casual, laid-back church services? Does he like really intense, spontaneous, charismatic worship services? Does he like more structured, liturgical worship services? What, what, does he like it when churches meet in, in really elaborate houses of worship like this? Or does he like when they meet in old warehouses that look like Pinterest exploded in it? What kind of, what kind of worship does God like? According to Amos, one of the primary factors taken into account when the Lord weighs our worship is not what the pastor wears or the style of the music. It's how we're treating our fellow image bearers, particularly those in need. He hates worship when we come in and lift up our voices in prayer and song, but after we leave the sanctuary, fail to lift up those same voices for the sake of the poor and marginalized. He hates it when our feet hasten to run to the sanctuary, but fail to run to the side of the oppressed and suffering. He hates it when we raise our hands to bless God in praise, but refuse to lift a hand to lend help to the fallen and downtrodden. God hates it when our religion is limited to the sanctuary and fails to affect our lives outside of the church doors. He finds that kind of religion repulsive and putrid. And that's why at the exact dead center of our text, the main thrust of Amos' message, we find him exhorting a pursuit of justice. Look with me lastly, exhorting a pursuit of justice. Verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The picture given us here is one of a land in drought, a barren land, a scorched land. You might think of the state of California right now. What the Lord wants instead is for the waters of justice and righteousness to begin to flow freely and in abundance to replenish and refresh this scorched land. 
then the question remains, what, what, what is righteousness? What is justice? Often when we think of the word justice, we think of some sort of retribution. Someone commits a crime, say theft, they rob a bank, they're caught, charged, prosecuted, they get jail time, retribution is done, justice is done, and that's what we might call retributive justice, and that's uh, definitely a, a way that the word is used in Scripture, in the Bible sometimes. But more often than not, when the Bible uses the word the way Amos is using it here, it means another kind of justice, something we might call restorative justice. And restorative justice is closely related to the belief that, that human beings are made in the image of God. Being made in God's image, human beings have certain rights. They deserve to be treated with dignity and honor and respect. They deserve equal treatment. They deserve to have their basic needs met, even if they're unable to provide for those basic needs themselves, no matter their age, their race, their socioeconomic status, their sex, their physical capabilities. They have rights, all on account of the honor of God in whose image they're made. And restorative, injust- restorative justice is ensuring that those rights are respected, that human beings are treated with dignity and honor as image bearers, making corrections and reparations when they're not treated as such. Righteousness, then, is a, is a word closely related to this. In fact, very often in the Old Testament, you'll see these two words used together. Over three dozen times in the Old Testament, these two words are coupled together. And this word righteousness means, if we had to just sum it up in a few words, it means having right relationships. Tim Keller, I think, puts it, he gives a a very robust definition. He says, righteousness refers to -to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships and family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. That's what righteousness and justice mean in a kind of abstract sense. But to put it a bit more concretely, the book of Job really gives us a good picture of what a life of justice and righteousness looks like. In describing his life, Job says this of himself in Job 29, 12 to 16. He says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Listen, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. And then Job, Job 31 actually, Job goes on to list those same things there and to say that if he had failed to do those things, if he had refrained from helping the neglected and suffering, that he actually would have been guilty before God and deserving of his judgment. You see, that's what it means to do justice and to live righteously. Notice, it's not enough to merely refrain from actively oppressing marginalized, poor, and vulnerable people. The scriptural standard, God's law, says you must actively seek to put an end to their suffering and oppression when it's within your power. Even if it's not your fault, the Lord tells us it's our responsibility. We must take up the predicament of the poor and suffering as our own. We must stand in solidarity with them and seek to make things right for them insofar as we're able. This is what the Lord wanted from Israel. More than her songs and her sacrifices, he wanted her to do justice and righteousness. 
And friends, the Lord wants the same of us today. He does not change. His commands do not change. His will does not change. What he called his people to do then, he calls his people to do now. Social justice is not a distraction from God's calling upon, the, uh, upon his people. It's an essential part of our calling. Perhaps Charles Spurgeon put it best. If you don't believe me, believe him. He said, any church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice, and to hold up righteousness is a church that has no right to exist. Again, we cannot put God in a box marked religious ritual, religious knowledge, and cut him off from our relationships and our societal involvement. Now, what does this look like practically? And and this is Indeed, where matters become more complex, don't they? We have a biblical duty and mandate to care for the poor and marginalized and vulnerable people. But God doesn't actually say what that looks like in Israel at this time, does he? And and undoubtedly, whatever it looks like in Israel in the 8th century BC, it's going to look quite different for us now in the 21st century. And so perhaps it would just be helpful to to discuss maybe several areas of injustice in our society that deserve our, our attention, our prayers, our voices, our actions, and then share briefly just some ways to get involved. One area that certainly deserves our attention as Christians is orphan care. Children without families, without parents, without a loving home. In fact, if, if you were to go back through the Old Testament and do a study of these words, justice and righteousness, you'll often see exhortations to care for orphans right alongside them, along with exhortations to assist widows and immigrants and the poor. And these, these four groups are, in fact, so often discussed in connection with the biblical concept of, of, of justice that Old Testament scholars often call them the quartet of the vulnerable, the quartet of the vulnerable, orphans, widows, immigrants, the poor. Four groups of people that are particularly prone to suffering from poverty and injustice, and so they deserve special care and attention from God's people. And even to this day, I, I looked at the numbers in, the, in Ohio this past week. There are over 2,600 2, children in Ohio waiting to be adopted. It's an egregious injustice that any child should be without parents to love and provide for. And perhaps the Lord, I know the Lord has called several families in our church to, to foster care and adoption, and, and perhaps the Lord is calling more, I don't know. But, but no matter what, some of us are called to that, and others are called to assist those who are called to that because there are sizable demands associated with such a calling. And of course, we, as, we of all people know what it is to be adopted into a loving family since we've been so graciously welcomed into God's family with Him as our Father What a beautiful way we can demonstrate the truth of the Christian message as those who have been adopted as God's children. What about the the predicament of immigrants in our nation? They're also listed among the the quartet of the vulnerable. And today we're we're living in a nation where many seek to come here and to, to build new lives here from all over the world. But that's a difficult thing to do. There are language and cultural barriers. These people often face prejudice and suspicion from their new neighbors. 
Much like in the ancient Near East, they're particularly vulnerable to, to poverty and suffering and hardship. And so God's people would do right then to take up their predicament as our own and to stand in solidarity with them, when, especially when they're actively oppressed in our nation, when families are separated at the border, when immigrants are treated as less than human by law enforcement. God's people cannot stand idly by, especially since we ourselves are sojourners in this world. We are citizens, living here as citizens of heaven in a foreign land, in a land that is not our home. We of all people ought to know what it is to be strangers in a strange land. We would also be remiss if we didn't mention the issue of life and the unborn. A demographic of people who are so helpless and vulnerable, they have no voice of their own at all. They have no ability to stand up for themselves. And yet they're brutalized and slain in our nation by the hundreds of thousands every year. We can't stand by and do nothing. We can't carry on as if it's not happening. To do so would be unjust. It would be an utter failure to do justice and righteousness and obedience to God's word. Another major issue in our nation right now, the, the plight of our minority neighbors, especially our black neighbors. Since the beginning of our nation, they've been pushed to the margins and subjugated to inhumane treatment, which carries on in some measure to this day. We can't claim to have a just and equitable nation when white families possess seven times more wealth than black families which is, which is the, the, the rotten fruit of centuries of oppression from slavery at our nation's birth to redlining in recent years, and even to this day, our nation's criminal justice system, a problem much like the problems in Israel's, in Amos's day. When our black neighbors, image bearers, are subject to the horrors of police brutality and incarcerated at a rate five times the rate of whites. When our black brothers and sisters cry out and lament over their plight, in our nation, we cannot remain indifferent. We cannot shut our ears to their cries and claim to be just and righteous. Nor can we shut our ears to the cries of those who have suffered sexual assault and harassment. This is an injustice that plagues our nation from Hollywood to Washington, D.C. We live in a time and place where in one in four women and one in six men will have been or will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Most of that will have taken place before these individuals reach adulthood. We could go on and on. We have far more than a quartet of vulnerable peoples in our society, but the fact remains that we as God's people are the ones among whom justice is supposed to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In this world, wherein we find a drought of righteousness and justice, we're called to replenish and refresh and renew with an abundance of freely flowing water. We're called to take up the cause of the marginalized and oppressed as our own and stand in solidarity with them. There are, of course, a number of ways that we can and should do this. And furthermore, we should recognize that not everyone will be called to doing the same things in the pursuit of justice in the Christian life. Nor can one person or household do everything, but everyone can do something to reverse social injustices in our world. And so before we close, I'd like to recommend that you pick up one of these books, of course, 
But I'd also like to recommend that you pick up uh, one of these sheets of paper. They're on the, the table out here, and I believe um, on the uh, little table on your way out that door as well if you go out there. Um, but this is, this is just a, a, a sheet of paper uh, that, that just lists off a number of ways uh, for, for us to get involved with pursuing justice and righteousness in our community in relations to these issues that we just discussed. And we think that these ministries and organizations listed here and the work they're doing is directly related to these number of issues that we just discussed. And so you'll find their information for foster care, safe families, Victory Project, Her Story, No Longer Strangers, which is a, a, a ministry that seeks to serve immigrants and refugees in our community, and, and more. You'll, you'll find individuals in our church that you can get in contact with in relation to these organizations. And if you've been convinced by Amos here that you need to make a move in pursuing a life of justice and righteousness, perhaps these are some tangible next steps that you can take in that direction. After the service, go pick one of these up and find out more. But no matter what, no matter what, whether you get involved with these sorts of works or not, as a matter of obedience to God's word, we're called to live lives of righteousness and justice. It's not optional. There's no question, but, but, but what's more is that we find the best reason to do so in God's gospel. The gospel is what drives us to be people of justice. You see, because even while we were suffering under the weight and guilt of our own sin, the Lord looked upon us with mercy and compassion when we were utterly helpless to change our status in God's kingdom. He looked upon us with generosity and love and care and moved with compassion. He actually took up our predicament as his own. He took up our plight as his own. Even though it wasn't his fault, he made it his responsibility. He came and took on human flesh and he went to the cross to take upon himself our sin and he died in our place and he rose on the third day to deliver us from oppression, the oppression of sin and Satan and death. Although he was rich, he looked on us who were poor and he delivered us. Although he was free, he looked on us who were enslaved to sin and he delivered us. Even though he was enjoying the pleasures and perfections of heaven, he looked on us who were suffering and he delivered us. He took up our predicament and our plight as his own. He stood in solidarity with us as sinful and broken humanity and he delivered us. How could we then ever look upon our fellow human beings when they're suffering, when they're poor, when they're marginalized and oppressed? It's as if we're looking into a mirror. How could we not be moved with compassion to demonstrate and display what our God has done for us? It would be unnatural. Friends, true religion includes living lives of justice and righteousness toward our neighbors. It means caring for the needy and the oppressed. It means taking up their cause as your own. It means letting justice flow like waters and righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. May Veritas be a church and a people wherein that takes place. It's not optional. Let's pray. Father, as we sang earlier, forgive us passing by when children cry for bread 
Forbid it, Lord, that justice lie in tatters cold and dead. Let justice roll like a river in Veritas and let justice roll like a river through us and into our homes and streets and neighborhoods and into our city. Let us be your obedient people, driven because of what you've done for us in the truth of the gospel, to be people of justice and righteousness toward our neighbors. We pray in Jesus' name.